So last week, as we looked at both the sign of Jesus' feeding of the 5,000 and him miraculously walking on water, the primary truth that John was communicating to his readers was that Jesus is the embodiment and the fulfillment of both the work performed in and through the nation of Israel as they were rescued from slavery and sustained in the wilderness and of the one who, per who performed the work, Israel's covenant-keeping God, Yahweh. In other words, in providing bread from heaven and having authority over the sea, Jesus was demonstrating that he is, in fact, God. He is God. And so for the last two weeks, that has been what was laid before us. Jesus is God. But John wants us to understand more about who this man Jesus is and what he has done. That not only is he the same God who led Israel out of slavery, but that he is doing it again. That he is doing it again, only this time the volume has been turned up significantly. Last week we saw how Jesus provided bread to sustain the physical lives of his people. This week we'll see that physical bread points to something much bigger. And in the same way we are required to eat the bread in order to experience that physical sustenance. Right? We can't just leave it on the counter. We can't just leave it in our plates. We actually have to take it into our bodies. We must also eat of the spiritual bread offered to us through the gospel, the bread of life, that unless we eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, we have no life in us. We're going to talk about that. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to John 6. We'll be working through the rest of the chapter this morning, beginning in verse 22. So we're covering a lot of ground. So we won't be able to dig into every single detail of the chapter, but we will be wrestling with some really important theological categories, truths that can be described as hard sayings, but truths that I pray will draw us into deeper communion with Christ. That's really the point, right? That we would be drawn into deeper communion with God, that we would be drawn into a deeper relationship and fellowship with God. And so let's take a look at verse 22. It starts like this. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had only been one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat <coughs> with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they got into the boats and went to Capernaum, seeking Jesus. That's key. Just hold that in your brain for a little bit. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Rabbi, when did you get here? A couple things, right? Setting the scene here. It's the day after Jesus fed the crowds in the wilderness. The text suggests that the people making up the crowd are the same from the day before. Now, I'm not sure if the same amount of people were there, but the ones who are, they had eaten the bread, right? They were a part of the miracle that took place. It's also clear that there's a little bit confusion, right? They don't know how Jesus got there. That's what's going on here. They're confused. They know that the disciples had gone away, referring specifically to, to, to the 12 in verse 22. And they also know that he wasn't where they last saw him. In verse 25, 
they're hoping to gain a little bit of clarity. But Jesus responds with an answer that has absolutely nothing to do with their question, which is kind of what Jesus does all the time. It's like, oh, you want to know that? Well, I'm going to tell you all about this instead. And I'm never going to even broach the subject of that. Like, that's just like kind of how he rolls. I'm going to try that with my kids and see if it works. I'll let you know how it goes. Now, we know from verse 59, this is later on in the text, that the events that are about to transpire, they're taking place in the synagogue in Capernaum. This is a a formal teaching setting that Jesus is involved in. What I also think is interesting is that this crowd refers to Jesus as rabbi. We're going to get to that. Now, before we move on, we need to remember the sort of crowd we're dealing with. This was a politically motivated crowd, high on revolution, hoping that what they saw and experienced the day before marked the beginning of their path to freedom. It should be no surprise that the people were looking for Jesus, considering the last time they saw him, they wanted to take him by force and make him king. Right? They wanted to take him by force and make him king. That's the context. That's the scene that we're entering into. Last week, we stressed the point That Jesus didn't start, didn't come to start a political revolution. Not then, and certainly not now, but that he came to reveal God to the world. He came to reveal God to the world. And so I'm sure that Jesus' instincts from verse 15 are still very much on his mind when he responds to the crowd. He knows what they want. He knows what they're looking for. Verses 26 through 27 says this, Jesus answered them, truly, truly, which means like this is really important. Listen up. Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you, for on him God the Father has set his seal." So a couple things, right? The feeding of the crowd in the wilderness. What was going on was that this was an acted-out parable. This was an acted-out parable performed by Jesus with the purpose of revealing who he was. And what we know about parables is that they are only understood by those who have ears to hear. In Matthew's gospel, Jesus tells us that the reason he speaks in parables is basically to reveal the unbelief of his listeners, to reveal the unbelief. It's like he speaks on purpose to confuse people. He speaks on purpose so that people are kind of like, I have no idea what you're talking about. And then he says, bingo, you don't because you actually don't believe in me. And that's what we're seeing unfold here. But parables are also meant to teach something about the kingdom of God and what Jesus is communicating when he tells the crowd to labor for the food that endures to eternal life is that the kingdom is more than a physical and material thing. The kingdom is more. It is physical and material. Make no mistake about that. But it's more than a physical or material thing. This is really important. Jesus, just a few verses earlier, perceived that they wanted to make him king because they were tired of being oppressed by the Roman Empire. But Jesus wants them to understand. And maybe even more so, he wants the 12 to understand That while he cares deeply for the created material world, after all, he's the one who created it, he must first deal with the hearts of humanity. 
because the brokenness that has led to this rampant oppression of the weak throughout all of human history has not only captured the imaginations of these powerful emperors, despots, and dictators, but it has infected even those who claim to be the people of God and even those 12 by Jesus, chosen by Jesus himself, which means we too have been infected with the same virus. We too have been infected with the same virus. Verse 28, 31, keeps going. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? That What work do you perform? Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Notice what they ask. What must we do? To which Jesus responds, believe. Or better, pledge allegiance. Pledge allegiance to him whom he has sent. In other words, throw yourselves on me. That's what Jesus is trying to communicate to them. Now their response is confusing at best and downright entitled, disrespectful, and blasphemous at its worst. What sign do you do? What work do you perform? In other words, can you be a little bit more like Moses? To quote Zoolander, am I on crazy pills? Right? Maybe you haven't seen it. I thought it was funny. And that's all that matters. Just one day before, while they were in the wilderness, Jesus turns five loaves and two fish into a feast for 10 to 20,000 people, so much so that there were 12 baskets left over. Israel had been filled up to the brim, but they're still not satisfied. They're full yet wanting. They're full yet wanting. And so Jesus responds in verse 32. He says, he says to them, truly, truly, which again, like this is important. Listen up. Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. You've seen me, and yet you do not believe. He explains to them that it was not Moses who gave them the bread, but that it was God all along. And that the bread that God now gives to them is standing right in front of them. And then he uses those words again that we saw last week, ego a me, I am the bread of life. And, and this ego a me, this I am statement is put on full display for us to see as Jesus identifies himself again with the covenant-keeping God of the Hebrew scriptures, remembering that those, uh, those words are the way that Yahweh identified himself to Moses. Who shall I say sent me, God? Tell him I am who I am sent you. And so that's what's going on here again. And then he says that whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. 
And so in verse 35, what the text is doing, it's, it's subtly drawing our attention to the prophet Isaiah, who in chapter 55, as he spoke of the coming of this new kingdom, this new creation, he says, come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy, eat, come, buy wine, milk, without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and, and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me. And eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. The point that Jesus is making, the kingdom they're hoping for and the kingdom that is unfolding before their eyes are two very different entities. In the kingdom they're hoping for, violence, oppression, and sin will continue to reign. Why? Because the food of that kingdom or of that age, guess what? It doesn't satisfy. It doesn't satisfy. In the kingdom they're hoping for, the one that most of us are hoping for, if we're honest, and I'm preaching to myself, I'm always preaching to myself, is also a kingdom that will leave us wanting and unsatisfied. It's a kingdom that will leave us wanting and unsatisfied. And like I said, if we're honest, every single one of us are looking for that kingdom. We all are. Whether it's a kingdom marked by expressive individualism where I can be whatever or whoever I want with no barriers. That's a path that leads to emptiness. Or maybe it's a kingdom where happiness is Lord. Whether it's happiness in a relationship, in a spouse, in our career. Not that these are bad desires. But as an ultimate As our salvation, this is a path that will, again, leave us wanting every single time. For some, it's a kingdom of pleasure. Jesus loves the physical world. He created it. And even in this passage, as we'll soon see, he's going to redeem the physical world. And on that same day, we too will be restored physically. But that doesn't mean that the physical is king. But when we place our physical desires or we seek pleasure through means that are outside the confines of God's purposes, that's what we're doing. We're making the physical king. To engage in any form of sex outside the confines of marriage is to pledge allegiance to a kingdom of pleasure. And the same is true when we self-medicate, whether through the use of substances or for some of us, it's food. We are pledging allegiance to the kingdom of pleasure. For others, like the crowd Jesus is speaking to, it's a kingdom of political power where we seek to protect the interests and desired culture or way of life of our group or our tribe, the one that we're most comfortable with while demonizing those who disagree. We all do this to varying degrees. All of these categories, we've all picked and chosen from this this buffet of kingdoms. We all have. And so what's the point? All of those kingdoms and the desires they each uncover in all of us, they're not bad in and of themselves, but they're also not the reason Jesus came. They're not bad in and of themselves, but they're not the reason Jesus came. And so when we make them our source of salvation... We're essentially saying no to Christ. When we make them the source of our salvation, we are essentially saying no to Christ. This is a hard saying. This is a hard saying. 
And it's why Jesus says to the crowd that while they have seen him, (coughs) they do not believe. Sure, yeah, they believe. They ate the loaves and the fish the day before. Like, they know that. They believe that what, what they saw, the signs that he was doing on the sick, but the reason they're looking for more is because they have not yet come. They have not yet believed. They're unsatisfied. To get back to Isaiah 55, the sort of kingdom unfolding in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus is a kingdom where we will not thirst or go hungry, where we can buy and eat of the richest and most bountiful meal ever imagined, and we do it without spending a single cent without spending a single cent, without performing a single work. Why? Because the banquet has been thrown and paid for in full by the flesh and blood of its host. It's a wedding where we should feel no obligation to cover our plate. We've all been there. Got to cover your plate. Oh, that's, my mom always told me, got to cover your plate. Got to cover your plate. Then you go to a wedding at like one of these enormously beautiful places. I'm like, there's no way I'm covering my plate. I got to take out a second mortgage to cover my plate. But rather, it's one where we go as we are. And check this out. Upon entering the reception, we're clothed in the best suit, in the most beautiful gown, and we sit down to the most satisfying meal. This is good news. This is the gospel. That's what we're seeing unfold as we read through this text. Jesus is saying, just come. Like, I know you don't get it, but just shut up and come. I know this, this, is, this is like messing with all of your categories, but come, come. But they don't want to come. What Jesus is saying as he unpacks the meaning behind the sign he performed is that we are redeemed, forgiven, saved, adopted into the family of God by what John Newton describes as amazing grace. It's amazing grace. It's why he says in verses 37 and following, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do (coughs) my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given to me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. It's the Father who gives us to the Son. And it's the Son who will never cast us out, who keeps us. It's the son who will not lose us, but will raise us up on the last day. Those of us who look on the son and believe in him. This is also a hard saying. Why? Because what we're being taught from the lips of Jesus is that our salvation is a complete work of God. From beginning to end, it is God who saves. This is incredible. This is incredible. But embedded in this incredible passage is also a warning. This passage, along with verse 44, teaches us the following. God is the one who has initiated and secured our salvation. Now, this isn't the only place we read of God's sovereign work, his authoritative work in salvation. We see this discussed at length in Paul's letters to the Romans, along with all of his other letters. 
Peter talks about it as well, along with all of the other gospel writers. This passage also teaches what theologians refer to as assurance, or in more reform circles, the perseverance of the saints. What this doctrine teaches us is that those whom God called, he will not cast out. Right? That's good news. That's good news. What this does not mean, we're going to talk about that for a few minutes. What this does not mean, and I have a slide for this in the words of theologian John Murray, it does not mean, and, and you might get mad at me for this, this right now, it does not mean that everyone who professes faith in Christ and who is accepted as a believer in the fellowship of the saints in the church is secure for eternity and may entertain the assurance of salvation. Wait, what? What? Let's talk about it. All right, we're going to talk about it. Don't get too nervous. In other words, church membership, professions of faith, ministry involvement, these do not secure us a place in heaven. And that's why the New Testament is filled with warnings. And I have some slides. I'm going to put up some verses for us. 2 Corinthians 13, 5. Text says, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourself, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? Hebrews 6, verses 4 through 6. For it is impossible in the case of those who have been once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again <coughs> to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and hold him up to contempt. That's heavy. That's a heavy verse. Verses 2 Peter 2, verses 20 through 21. For if, after they have escaped the defilements of the world, through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome by them, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them to never have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. That word overcome means defeated, crushed by. The point, we're not done, don't worry, we're not done. Don't stress, I see some concerned faces. The Christian life is one that is marked by faithfulness in which the crucial test of true faith is endurance to the end, abiding in Christ, and continuance in his word. All right? Endurance to the end, abiding in Christ and continuance in his word. And we know this because it's what we're taught in scripture, right? I'm not making this up. Matthew 10, says, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. John 15, verses five through six, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I am him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. In 1 Peter 1, verses 3 through 5, I'm going to turn to that. It says this, and I have a slide for it. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That's great, right? We like that to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. We like that too. 
kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. The Father has caused us to be born again. He did that. He did that. He's the one who draws us. He's the one who calls us. Romans talks about he's the one who, who, who elected us before the foundations of the world. He has caused us to be born again. Our inheritance is imperishable. Like, like it's the milk you put in the fridge and it doesn't go bad. Like it stays there forever. Undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for us. And it is by God's power we are being guarded through faith. Through faith. For a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In other words, we are kept. We are kept through faith, and we are kept unto the final consummation. So what is our security? What is our assurance? This is good news. It is a spirit-formed and produced obedience and perseverance secured for us by grace through the atoning work of Christ, whereby we find our way to the celestial city by faithfully walking in the good works that God prepared beforehand. Again, this is God. And so the warnings are real because we cannot rest in an assurance that is marked by a faith which is dead that sows to the kingdoms of this world. Catch what I just said. We are saved by grace through faith but we are saved by grace through faith, a faith that is not alone, a faith that is accompanied by the spirit-produced works of God. Which means, and it's why Paul says, should I sin so that more grace may abound? And he's like, no, don't do that. Like, I get if you stumble into sin. I understand that. But don't think like you can do whatever you please And that there's no consequence to that. This does not mean that we don't have assurance. This does not mean that we don't have eternal security. This does not mean that the perseverance of the saints is not true. It means that we can't intentionally, without regard, make a mockery of God's grace. You see the difference? It's so important. One of my professors used to say, in like a thoroughly reformed seminary, like this isn't like thoroughly reformed seminary, That every time we intentionally sin, we are one step closer to apostasy, right? To walking away from the faith. And so the question was like, well, well, what do we do with the people who who were saved and then they weren't? Now, it depends who you talk to, right? If if you're talking to a guy like me who, who who is a reformed guy, I'll tell you, well, they probably never knew Jesus to begin with. If you're talking to someone who's not, they'll say they lost their salvation. I got to be honest with you, both of those things, it doesn't really matter. What does matter is that we walk faithfully. We continue to walk in faithfulness. We continue to pursue Christ, to eat of the spiritual food that he offers us, the bread of life, Jesus, right? Unless you drink of his blood and eat of his flesh, not literally, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. And so that means we are daily fighting against sin and temptation. It means that we do test ourselves. 
It means that if, if all of a sudden we wake up 20 years from now and, and we haven't been walking with Jesus for like 20 years, we got to be like, well, what, whoa, where do I actually love this, this man God, this, this man Jesus that I claim to have loved all these years? But, but there's good news here because I don't want us to like walk away kind of like, oh, whoa, John, I don't know what you're talking about. This is going to blew up everything I ever thought, right? Like this does not mean that you don't have assurance, it means that you prove your assurance to yourself by how you live your life, right? That's why James says that you're justified by works, right? And, and, and some of the reformers were like, I don't want this book in the Bible. And they're like, no, 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 you need this in the Bible. Because what it's teaching is actually the same thing that Paul teaches, that, that we can't just throw up a prayer and say, Lord, I believe, and then go on doing whatever we please. Can't do that. That's not salvation. Salvation changes us. It actually affects who we are because something happens internally in our hearts. The root of who we are starts to change. And, and that, that, that stony heart that, that, want, that we had once before becomes a heart of flesh. And now it starts pumping. And it's producing that spirit-filled blood throughout our bodies. And so it affects how we live. That's assurance, Redeemer. It means that when we do sin, we're convicted by it and we want to make it right. We want to change. And it means that we pursue righteousness. And then as we do that, as we work out our own salvation with fear and trembling, the Holy Spirit continues to breathe life into our lungs. And the, and the, and the blood keeps pumping more, right, the, from that heart of flesh. And we become more and more conformed to the image of Christ. And all of a sudden, these things called the fruits of the Spirit, they start appearing in our lives. All of a sudden, we're like patient with people. All of a sudden, we're loving with people. All of a sudden, we're just like thinking differently. And, and then you start to be like, well, wait, no, I used, to, I used to respond this way to that situation. And I don't know why I don't. It's like, yeah, yeah, you do. The Spirit of God is doing something in you. And you're thinking like, oh, well, I used to, I used to look at that and, 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 and like be drawn to it. But now I'm like... Now I'm uneasy about it, and then maybe, maybe a few years later, you're not only uneasy about it, you're repulsed by it, and then maybe a few years later, you're just not even thinking about it because you're just walking with Jesus, keeping in step with his spirit. This is sanctification. It's what it means to walk with God. He changes you step by step from glory to glory. This is good news. This is good news. You guys tracking with this? This is so important, right? This is like one of those, those theological categories that, that sadly, we've turned it into something else. We've turned it into this idea where it's like, well, no, I, I pray to prayer. I, pray, I even wrote it down in my Bible. I pray to prayer. And you're like, no, this is why I'm saved. Look, look. It says right here. I wrote it down. January 4th, 1998, 4.03 p.m., right? And then, and then what we should respond, it's like, no, no. That didn't save you. Jesus saved you. The prayer didn't save you. Jesus saved you. And he, and he gave you that faith. And now he's changing you. It really comes down to what are we entrusting ourselves to. And for so many, I think people have entrusted themselves to an experience or to, to a prayer that they prayed or, or to whatever it is rather than entrusting ourselves to the Son of God who died on a cross and rose again for our sins. You see the difference? That's so important. That's so important. And so then in hearing all of this, in hearing all of this good news that Jesus is just kind of putting forth, 
It says the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that comes down from heaven. Verse 42, they said, is this, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, who, whose father and mother we know? How does he say, how does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Right? John is again, this is so cool, he's referencing back to the Exodus, only this time he's highlighting the sin of God's people. They're grumbling, right? Same word used in the Old Testament. And they grumbled because they didn't particularly like the sort of salvation that God offered them through the hands of Moses. See, Exodus 16 highlights how this redeemed people who, was, who were freed from slavery, how they actually wanted to go back to their captors, back to Egypt. This word, the Jews, is a reference to the religious leaders of the day. And, and now they're looking to discredit Jesus' ministry. We know this guy's parents. He didn't come down from heaven. He came from Nazareth. Nazareth is the worst. Nothing good comes out of there. Well, that's kind of what they're saying. Heaven? No, no, bro, we've been to Nazareth. It is a far cry from heaven. And so Jesus responds as he always does. Verse 43, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them. And I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness... <coughs> And they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I'm the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. So we need to remember that Jesus is teaching in the synagogue. It's a formal sort of situation. The religious leaders are present. The crowds from the pre previous day are present, and the 12 are present. Jesus teaches all who are listening, and those of us who are reading, that whoever believes has eternal life. And then he clearly equates belief with eating in verse 51. Like, it's not really a mistake. Are you guys reading verse 51 and thinking, like, I got to chow down on Jesus? Like, literally. Like, is cannibalism coming to your mind as you read those words? It's not. It's not. The point is that Jesus is teaching his listeners the kingdom-shaped meaning of the miracle from the day before, which is, one, that God provides salvation, two, that his kingdom is not of this world, and three, entrance into the kingdom requires faith, and in so doing, just like he does through the parables, he is revealing the unbelief of all who are listening, which is exactly what verse 52 demonstrates. Look at what they say. The Jews, the religious leaders, disputed among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? It's like, come on, bro. Really? They don't understand the symbol, and they don't understand the metaphor, and the reason they don't understand is because they simply don't have ears to hear. Nicodemus had the same struggle when he covered his misunderstanding by sarcastically telling Jesus that a grown man can't climb back into his mother's womb, where we respond, Nick, come on, Nicodemus. 
You really think that's what he's saying? The Samaritan woman also misunderstood. But God in his grace opened her eyes to see, and he broke down this barrier that kept the Samaritans on the outside. And here, these religious leaders and the gathered crowd, they also don't see. But the first ones who don't see, it seems like it's the religious leaders. And so Jesus doubles down. Verse 53. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me forever, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread that the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. Right. Not only do I want you to eat my flesh, but I want you to drink my blood. It's almost as if Jesus is intentionally using Jewish taboos to make his point. Torah forbids the Jewish people from drinking blood. And there are a number of passages that speak against cannibalism, rightfully so. See, part of me thinks that the Jewish leaders know that Jesus isn't speaking literally, and so to save face, kind of like Nicodemus, they turn this into something it's not. Again, why? They're trying to discredit his ministry. That's what's happening here. They don't get it. They don't like him. And so they're going to try and make a fool of him. And Jesus doubles down. He's like, oh, you don't like the flesh thing? Well, guess what? How about you drink my blood? Right? That's what he's doing. It's wild. Like, like the way he's interacting, it's like he's not backing down. And what you'll notice about Jesus throughout the Gospels, he doesn't play with the religious leaders. I mean, Jesus is filled with grace and compassion as he approaches sinners, as he approaches prostitutes, as he approaches the broken, the lepers. But man, the religious leaders, he don't play with them. He's like, you guys are leading these people astray. I'm not messing around. You don't like what I'm saying? I'm, I'm going to double down on it. And I'm going to really mess with your head. The sad part about this passage is that if you remember, Jesus is at the height of his popularity. He had 10 to 20,000 people following him. When they couldn't find him, they went looking for him. He was their rabbi, and Jesus loved them. And we know that because he took care of them. In the wilderness, when they were hungry, he fed them. But they didn't want what he was offering. They didn't want it. Verses 60 and following, turn with me there. It says, when many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, he said to them, do you take offense at this? You don't like this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. After this... 
many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Did you notice that Jesus refers to these, this group, this crowd, as disciples? Multiple times, three times. He calls them disciples. And what do these disciples say? They say, this is a hard saying. Like, I don't know if I buy this, Jesus. I wonder if they had the words of the religious leaders, their literal interpretation in their minds confusing them. But, but Jesus doesn't soften, soften his teaching, right? He teaches that the kingdom of God is spiritual, that he did not come for political revolution, not then and certainly not now. He teaches that God is the true sovereign and salvation is in his hands, 100%. He teaches that Moses isn't God, and you guys need to get off this Moses kick. And the miracles he performed in the wilderness were done through him, not by him. And then he teaches them that salvation will be won through the offensive death of the Messiah being hung upon a tree. This is a hard saying. These are hard sayings. And Redeemer, Christianity is filled with hard sayings, with demands placed upon our lives that call us to lay aside our rights, to lay aside our desires, to lay aside our dreams. And the hardest saying, in my opinion, is pick up your cross and follow me. Because what that demands of us is complete and utter submission to King Jesus. What that demands of us is self-denial and sacrificial love for both God and neighbor. What is a true disciple? Because that's what we've been wrestling with through this passage, if you've noticed. It's someone who hears the word of Christ and then entrusts themselves to him completely by pledging allegiance to him and him alone. And that pledge of allegiance, it permeates every single aspect of our lives how we approach government and politics, how we engage with people we disagree with, how we understand human sexuality, how we approach our marriages in good times and in bad, in sickness and in health. A true disciple hears the hard sayings, even the ones that at best make us uncomfortable and at worst might even make us angry or disgusted, and we submit to them. Why? Because in the words of Simon Peter, where else are we going to go? Jesus has the words of eternal life. And we have believed and we have come to know that Jesus is the Holy One of God. See, that's the point. The reason why Jesus, why Christianity can make these demands upon our lives, ones that often, especially in our culture, feel like just insane, is because Jesus died and then he rose again. Like, it's that simple, guys. It's that simple. Because he's the one who died and then got up from the grave and, and, and was no longer dead. Because guess what? That doesn't happen. Right? How many of us in this room have experienced resurrections? No. And so therefore, the one who is raised from the dead who claims to be God, we should probably listen to him 
even if it makes us uncomfortable, even if, it, even if some of what is taught in this book that are on the lips of Jesus disgust us, we got to listen. Why? Because in the words of the first question of the Heidelberg Catechism, what is your only comfort in life and death? The answer, that I am not my own but belong with God, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from all the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. Our only comfort in life and death is that we are not our own. You catch that? Our only comfort, the only thing that brings us true peace, that brings us true satisfaction is that I don't have authority over this. That's a hard saying. That's a hard saying, especially in the sort of culture that we live in, that, that I don't have authority over this. That's comforting. And the only way we can actually believe that that's comforting is the work of the Holy Spirit opening our eyes to that truth. That's the only way, because it's so counterintuitive. It makes no sense to our fallen sentiment, um, uh, whatever, our fallen thoughts. Couldn't think of the word. It doesn't make any sense. I should be comforted in the fact that I don't have authority over my life. I should be comforted in the fact that I don't belong to myself, but I belong to another. Yes, why? Because the one whom you belong to is the King of Kings, Jesus, our Savior, and he's not a despot. He's not an evil dictator. He's a benevolent God who loves us. And he walks with us. And he's going to raise us up on the last day. Redeemer, that is good news. That's good news for the world. That's good news for the world. It changes everything. If Jesus really is the one who has the words of eternal life, then we need to let go of it all and submit ourselves to him. And he promises that he will raise us up on the last day. You can't argue with that. It's so precious. And it's true. It's true because he rose from the dead. If he didn't rise from the dead, then you know what? In the words of Paul, eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow we die, but tomorrow we don't die. Tomorrow we are raised up on the last day. The resurrection changes everything. It changes everything. And so what do we do? We eat the flesh of Jesus, we drink his blood, which means we believe. We believe, we believe, and we believe some more. And when we're fighting unbelief, we say, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. And when we're still struggling, oh, we enter into the fellowship of his saints. And we say, hey, brothers, sisters, I'm hurting here. I'm struggling. Please lift up my arms because I can't do it alone. 
Because you know what? We can't do it alone. We can't do it alone. And I'm sure every single person in this room, if you've been walking with Jesus for any amount of time, there were times where you didn't have the belief, but you had brothers and sisters holding you up along the way. Right? That's God's grace. That's the spirit-filled work of the church coming alongside of you. That's him walking through the valley of the shadow of death with you. Right? Sometimes I think we, we and, and we're off on a tangent, and I know we're going long, but, but I think it's this important. Like sometimes we really think that we're supposed to always experience some, some, some like uber spiritual sort of like, ah, oh, I'm like, like up to the third heaven kind of Paul thing. But like most of the time, it's the people that like look to your right and to your left. It's them who are the hands and feet of Jesus, empowered by the Holy Spirit, coming alongside of you and lifting you up. Right? right, And that's why it hurts so much when, when, when the church hurts us. Because it's so, it's not supposed to be that way. And so we, we do need to repent of the times that we fumble the ball, drop the ball. Especially to the ones that we've hurt. We need to look at them and be like, hey, I, I didn't do the thing that Jesus called me to do. I'm sorry. And I don't know if you know, but one of those apologies, they go a long way. Like, they really do. Humility, I know I don't talk about it a lot, humility, but, like, it goes, that was a joke, um, it goes a long way. It goes a really long way. Right? This thing that we've been invited into, that we've been called into, that we've been drawn into, as the text says, oh, it's so good. It's so good. And, and there's going to be bumps and bruises along the way. But we've got to fight to keep walking with Jesus. We gotta fight to believe. And those of you, if you're here and you're like sitting here like, I don't know this Jesus. Like today's the day. Like, like I invite you to come into this thing. To submit yourselves to Jesus. Because guess what? Your only comfort in life and death is the same as our only comfort in life, life and death. It's that we're not our own, but we belong to Jesus Christ, our Savior, who saved us and who is saving us, and who will save us. That's good news. That's good news. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for the wonder of our salvation. We thank you that we are not our own, but we belong to you. And Lord, you are good. We belong to a good God, a good, good Father, a beautiful Savior, kept by the Holy Spirit. Help us, Lord. Help us to walk in obedience, to walk in faithfulness, to continually entrust ourselves to you day by day, Lord. Help us. And Lord, those who are struggling, even right now, those who are hurting, Father, bring comfort to them whether it's through one of those miraculous sort of making them feel your presence, Lord, or it's through the gentle touch, hug, and love of a brother or sister, whatever it is, Lord God. I pray that you would bring comfort upon your people. Father, we love you so much. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.